This show is produced by the Brennis Female Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu Podcast. Ubuntu is the philosophy that highlights our common humanity and the idea that we are all interconnected. If you want to know more about Ubuntu, I invite you to pick up a copy of my book, Everyday Ubuntu, Living Better Together, The African Way. Every week on this podcast, I speak to guests who are on a similar journey as mine, fighting for justice and learning along the way. In these conversations, we explore what we can learn from the human experience when we realize we are interconnected and acknowledge each other's point of view. This week, my guest is Jody Williams, peace activist, professor, and 1997 recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. As the founding coordinator of the international campaign to ban landmines, Jody won the Nobel Peace Prize along with the campaign, becoming the 10th woman and third American woman to receive it. In 2004, she was named as one of Forbes magazine's 100 Most Powerful Women and was instrumental in launching the Nobel Women's Initiative. Jody, welcome to Everyday Ubuntu. I want to start by asking you the question that I ask all of my guests. And mm-hmm. it's a question by my mother, who you actually know. And, you know, she says that our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, I want to ask what's missing from your extensive resume. Oh, very funny about extensive. It resume. is. <laughs> this is what it is, you know. Um I think one thing that most people don't know about me is that I am an introvert by nature. And of course, that does not mean that you cannot speak clearly and articulately in public, but it means that um, for me, I need a lot of alone time and you know, just space to gather my energy again after that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also am a Uh, moody isn't the right (laughs) word, but um, I do have changeable moods. Don't Um, we all? Yeah, we do. Some people are more even than others. Um, My husband, who runs the arms division of Human Rights Watch, Steve Goose, we met banning landmines, as a matter of fact. He's pretty even. I, At least on the surface, he seems even, you know. (laughs) But I, I'm a little more uh, up and down, especially in this particular moment in time with hey, the elections and COVID and, you know, all the um, protesting and demonstrations, anti-racist activities, which are so needed in this country. But it's just, it's such a strange time we live in. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I'm I'm definitely not the even one in um, my relationship, so... We can be sisters on that one. Um, well, so you said that you you two met banning landmines, and so you helped to found the international campaign to ban landmines. Mm-hmm. What made you so passionate about this? Um, I actually kind of stumbled into landmines. I didn't really, it wasn't my idea to start the campaign. I was asked by two organizations, mm-hmm. um, Vietnam Vets of America, foundation, you know, people who knew the realities of landmines, and an organization in Germany called Medico International, which is um, a relief organization that I knew from my time working in Central America. And 
they had just started a, a training program in Cambodia where they were training amputees, landmine amputees, from the four different fighting forces that had been at war in the country. Wow. And so it was a, a way both to give them training in a job that they could have, but also to bring together former, you know, enemy combatants. Mm -hmm. And in the process, they realized that landmines stay forever after a war. And the only way to deal with the issue is to ban them, right? Absolutely. Because if you don't, people will just keep using and using and using. And I thought it was um, fascinating issue, you know. I had been working on issues in Central America throughout the 1980s, trying to stop U.S. military intervention. And to be frank, after 11 years, I was sick of Central America. <laughs> I had given it all I had to give, you know. Sometimes you really do have to move on mm -hmm. for yourself and to give space to others to bring new energy to, you know, issues you've been working on. And so the landmine thing, I I just thought it was an amazing um, possibility to bring civil society, NGOs around the world in common cause for the greater good, if you will. Um, and I would have to learn more about laws of war, all sorts of things I didn't know. And I think that at least for me, and I think for most people, when we're learning new things as we are doing, we can bring the best that we have to offer to an issue. And it worked on the landmine. I think it's important to be, you know, lifelong learners. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and speaking of lifelong, so obviously, you know, you've done a lot for the world and we're going to speak more about that, but I wonder what you wanted to be when you were younger. I wanted to be, first off, I wanted to be a veterinarian. Okay. I really love animals, and um, but I couldn't. It, in the U.S., it is harder to get into veterinary school than medical school. At least it was. Um, and also, there were a lot of requirements. You had to have interned with a vet for a long time, so you actually knew what it was like to deal with animals and, and to deal with the sad parts of dealing with animals, mm -hmm. euthanizing and, you know, and dealing with animals who'd been hurt, etc. And I just didn't have that experience. And the other thing that I really wanted to be, and I'm still taken by, is I wanted to be an archaeologist. Okay. Specializing in, you know, Egypt and that part of the world. But I didn't. I ended up being an activist. So there you go. I mean, it's not too late. <laughs> um. <laughs> I think I'd have to go back to school for way too long at this point, you know? That's, that is possible. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've seen your work described as you performing life-threatening human rights work. And so I'd love to know what that experience was like for you. That sounds very dramatic. I mean, it. I just feel like in my life I have done what I felt had to be done to, again, try to make the world a better place. And um, sometimes I think I've been too stupid to be afraid of things, you know, things that one probably should be a little more concerned, <clears throat> excuse me, concerned about. I just didn't think about it.
and maybe that is not the best way to enter serious <laughs> situations, but I think I have a, an ability to put um, unpleasant things in a box somewhere in, in the back of my brain. So, you know, compartmentalizing. Which I'm, I'm very bad at that, so maybe you can teach me. It's a skill that is useful, although, you know, some people say that it makes you, uh, it, it hardens your feelings. I don't know if that's true, but it, worked, it has worked for me. My sister, Mary Beth, who's my best friend, often says to me that I have to open up all those boxes, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, sister, leave my boxes alone. I've done okay in the world. I don't want to mess up you know, those boxes, because who knows what would happen. We've made it this far, Mary Beth. I've made it this far. (laughs) Well, you were the mover and shaker behind the Nobel Women's Initiative. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, what are the particular strengths that that women bring to winning the Nobel Peace Prize? Um, Well, one, the thing about the Nobel Women's Initiative that is most telling to me in some ways is that in the hundred however many years of the Nobel Prize, the first was given in 1901, over 90 men have received the Peace Prize. I think it's only 17 women in the same time period, obviously, and the majority of those are after 1975. Prior to that, I think there were only five or six women who had received the Peace Prize. And as soon as we recognized that there you know, was a handful of us that could come together and work together on you know, supporting women around the world, we did. Mm-hmm. And men, there's never been a Nobel men's initiative, you know, a dedicated project even of men, Nobel Peace Laureates working together for to make the world a better place. I think that's, it doesn't necessarily mean that women are more peaceful, but we, we are different in that we do believe in, you know, collaborating and cooperating more. Men are kind of more like, I got the peace prize. Of course. (laughs) Yeah, it's done. I mean, it begs the question, like how many women have sent their nations to war? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Neither do I. I. (laughs) But I I honestly cannot imagine women sitting around together and and thinking, let's make up some new weapons and see how we can more easily kill other people. Absolutely not. You know, it's just so different. It does. Yeah. So then what are some of the big things that the initiative has done that really stand out to you? Well, I think one of the things that um, we have brought to the table, and it's not unique to us is helping bring the voices of women in conflict zones to the attention of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, not speaking for them, just opening the door so that they will be listened to themselves. And I think that is something to be proud of. Also, um, working working a lot more with young women you know to to learn from them but also to try to share experience so, you know i mean i've been an activist since the vietnam war mm-hmm. 
that showed you how old I am, young lady. Um, so I have a lot of years of experience, some uh, maybe not that great, but we learn from things we don't do so well, as well as things that we do well, you know, mm -hmm. and sharing those experiences and hearing what young women are concerned about and active on today. It's, it's a wonderful um, thing for everybody involved. I like what you said about not speaking for them because, you know, there, there are always people who say, I have this platform and I want to be a voice for the voiceless. And it's like, well, they're not necessarily voiceless. It's just they haven't been given your platform. Right. So, exactly. you know, maybe open it up to them. So I, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. <laughs> you try hard. In 2004, you were named as Forbes magazine's 100 Most Powerful Women in the World. Mm -hmm. Did that change how you viewed yourself and maybe how others viewed you as well? Maybe how others viewed me, but it didn't change how I view me. Um, one of the things that after I received the Peace Prize, uh, it was it was hard adjusting to it, honestly. Um, it was shared by myself and the landmine campaign, mm -hmm. but I did not expect that I personally would be recognized with the Peace Prize. And, you know, it was something your grandfather actually said once. We were at a um, a conference, a Nobel Peace Conference in Virginia. And he was asked, you know, how did the Nobel Prize change your life? And he said, before the prize, I talked and talked and talked and talked and nobody listened. Mm -hmm. After the Peace Prize, everything I say is a pearl of wisdom. That sounds like him. <laughs> Doesn't it? But there was sort of that expectation of people, you know, toward me after the prize. I, I certainly could talk about anything related to landmines and the landmine campaign, etc. But you they start asking you other questions in the world. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I don't think it's really clear. And either for better or worse, if I know a few facts about anything, I really can sound like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, but then that makes you feel fake, right? And so mm -hmm. when people kept asking me questions about, you know, world peace and this, that, and the other, I just felt like, fine, I can answer this, but other people could say the same thing, you know. I, I'm still Jody Williams. I haven't, I haven't suddenly changed, you know. Um, and I, I think that's one of the things I've been happiest about um, after receiving the prize that I didn't allow it to make me think I was something better or different or more important. Mm -hmm. I'm not. I'm just a person who cares and is willing to work with other people to bring a difference in the world. Nobody changes the world on their own, even if they think they do. Oh, yeah, 100%. So then what does someone who is one of the 100 most powerful women in the world do to take care of herself? Um, you know, when I'm having a rough time, my favorite thing to do <clears throat> is lay down in bed and read a ton of books. I've been a bookworm, you know, since I could read. So mm -hmm. I take a lot of... Um, solace from books and also I love that you can just escape into them and you don't have to think about what's going on in the world what is a book that you would recommend well they're those are you know 
<laughs> there are different ways to ask that question. One question that people are often asked, of course, is if you were stranded on a desert island, what book would you take with you? That's kind of asking the same question, right? right, right. I thought about that for years, like a lot, like bookworm type people do. And I finally settled on, I would take the biggest English dictionary in the world. Oh my goodness. Now think about it. If you took that dictionary, you could learn new words every day. Right. You could write paragraphs in the sand with your new, you know, new words, using them. So your brain would always be you know, learning and thinking and changing. And But if you brought like all the complete works of William Shakespeare, how many times could you read them before you would become sick to death of William Shakespeare? I've never thought about it that way, but you're right. You could be writing more books of your own there. There you go. Of course, they'd all disappear in the sand unless you were able to find a way to make paper and all that. But, but I feel comfortable with the dictionary. Okay. That is, that is the first time we've gotten that answer. But mm. I, li I like it. It's original. <laughs> so then, you know, you mentioned when you're having a tough time, you like to read, but in those tough moments, is there like a quote or a phrase or a mantra that sort of sustains you or guides you? You know, I, I thought about that question a lot. Um, I, there's not a, a particular phrase or anything. I just feel like... Um, Whenever I feel burning righteous indignation and injustice, I have to do something about it. And that's not answering your question properly, but I just think about, you know, why am I concerned? Why do I feel something should be done? And mm -hmm. it gives me more energy to try to take up an issue. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think these things, if you feel them, they sort of manifest in you. And so it's yep. it, that is the, the drive that keeps you going. Yeah. I 100% understand that. And this next question is probably more a bit, a bit wonky. Like I've, you know, studied peace and conflict resolution and security. So it's really more for me. But mm -hmm. if someone were to ask you what global security looks like, how would you describe it? Well, it certainly is not nuclear weapons, um, the new third revolution in warfare, which is fully autonomous weapons mm -hmm. that can kill you on their own. We call them killer robots, and we started a campaign to try to stop them. To me, real security is when the basic needs of all people are met. Right? When you think right. about, you know... A population that is desperate is more likely to be uh, more likely to be prone to violence, perhaps. Whereas, if everybody has a basic dwelling that's worthy of the name, right? It doesn't have to be a McMansion or anything. But if you have a decent place to live, you have a decent job that makes you feel like a you know, a fulfilled human being who is also, you know, contributing something to the world. Mm -hmm. If you have access to health care so that you don't have to worry if you or your children are sick about what you're going to do. If your children have 
access to equal education. Not like, you know, if I live in Beverly Hills, I'm going to have excellent education for my children. But if I live in Detroit or, you know, the the south side of Chicago, I'm not. Mm -hmm. Education across the country, across the world should be equal. You know, that is one of the things that amazes me in the U.S. is the constant dumbing down of education. Um, Yeah, how has education become a thing that we are not proud of? Yeah. I mean, even the the founding fathers, and of course we do not like that expression, but um, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who spoke out so strongly about the the most important thing for a strong country was an educated population even, you know, way back then. Um, And yet now we just, I don't know. It's like the dumbing down of news, right? Mm -hmm. Like celebrity news. (laughs) That makes makes me mental. (laughs) Really does. It makes me absolutely mental. And I remember the first time that uh, a quote unquote important news person had to talk about celebrity news. It was, uh, oh, and I don't even watch the news. I have no idea why I was happened to see it, but it was a man named Wolf Blitzer. Mm-hmm. And it was a Washington station. And it was, I think, the six o'clock news. And, and he actually paused. I have to say, I have to say that this is news. And Angelina Jolie just adopted her 95th child from the, you know, around the world so that she could form her own UN. Something, you know what I mean? And he was visibly disgusted by having to pretend that that was actual news that made a difference to anybody's life. Mm-hmm. But the, the, uh, since that moment, it is so, prevalent that celebrity and influencer business like who are these people huge businesses now yeah massive it's it's ballooned well are there issues happening now that you think we should all be paying greater attention to that we aren't climate change um, nuclear weapons and the you know modernization of nuclear weapons instead of getting rid of them like we should. Um, certainly the um, the ex- explosion of understanding of the racism upon which this country was built um, was fundamental to change. And the horrifying backlash that we're seeing from the racist segment of you know this this country, and of course spurred on by Mr. Trump himself, you know who's made it okay again to be overtly racist, to be overtly misogynist, to be overtly white supremacist and right wing. It's it is amazing. To well, me. yeah, they go. They've made the problem when you when you call out racism instead of the actual racism you're calling out. Exactly. Yep. Which is just. But how do we heal? How do we heal? It's the question, you know. That's why I'm talking to you. Woo. 
I don't know, I used to say to people years ago how easy it is to divide a nation. But then once you've done that, how do you how do you bring people back together? Mm-hmm. How do you get people to actually hear what the other person is saying so that you can have a conversation and not a screaming match and yeah. try to get to the root? You know what I mean? It, they're it's so much easier to make people hate each other than to make people like each other, I think. It is. It's it's hard to build trust and understanding. Yeah. yeah. Would you say, is there a Nobel Peace Prize winner who's had a big impact on you? And you don't have to say my grandfather. Well, of course he <laughs> has. You know, he's, he's hilarious. You know, I recently saw him. Really? I haven't uh, seen him since last November, COVID. No, yeah, it was it was back then, but to me that's recent, you know. <laughs> After all, he's not my grandfather. But I did a peace jam in South Africa. Oh yes, yes. And I was able to go and see him. It was awesome. He's just such a wonderful human being. He always made me laugh. Well, he makes me laugh. And we used to tussle about religion. Um, I am not a Christian. Um, Neither am I. So he he calls me the heathen. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I was raised Catholic, but left institutionalized religion when I was 17. And so you can imagine some of the fun conversations that one (laughs) would have with your grandfather about religion. And he just was funny about it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you, you know, if you say you don't believe, you do the right thing. You know, it's just <laughs> also, I mean, and this sounds like name dropping, but His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, has been influential. Mm-hmm. And those are names that probably anybody would say, um, but it's true. But also the women, all of the women that I have worked with in the Nobel Women's Initiative and, you know, through that come to know so much better. Mm-hmm. Like Wangari Matai, who was one of the founders and, of course, has since died. Um, Betty Williams, who recently died. Yeah, that one was that that was tough. Yeah, tough on your, your grandfather, I know. Um, she and I fought like crazy. She was a rocket. <laughs> I mean. That's, that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> but, uh, you know. You be in a room with us Nobel women talking about serious issues, we sometimes tussle. Mm-hmm. But that's the way you work through serious questions, I think, sometimes. Yeah. At least we don't, like, stand up and start a wrestling match. <laughs> Nobel women engage in mud oh, wrestling to resolve the issues of the world. Oh, gosh. Um, no, I can't imagine that. But they all have had an influence on me, seriously. Um, Lema Bowie from Liberia. Mm-hmm. Um, she and I are alike and uh, have tussled as well. Uh, but she, I, I'm really learning a lot by knowing her. Mm-hmm. Also, Shirin Abadi. Right. Shirin and I have uh, also also tussled. The moral of the story is Jody has tussled with everyone. 
the moral of the story is that everybody around me is a tussler. <laughs> so I have to protect myself by tussling back. I'm the sweet one, remember? Mm -hmm. You are. Right. Yeah, my mother, if my mother were in the room with us, she would just start laughing and say, you know, if you knew Jody like I do. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm I'm glad to hear that they have all had such an impact because I I do think that they have all had an impact on a great amount of people, me included. Um, and yeah, and I think we'll continue. All of you will continue to have an impact. Would you say there are any lessons that you've learned during COVID that you should share with people that you know we should have at the front of our minds? Um. I think the acceptance that um, that being f kind of forced to stay in your own space uh, does cause ups and downs in moods is interesting to me. Um, mm -hmm. So many people actually do get depressed about having to stay in their house. And um, I find that even, and I, have worked out of my home office since the early eighties. So being alone in my house is not a big challenge for me generally, but knowing that I should stay here, knowing that I should isolate as much as possible to protect myself, but to protect other people is kind of, it, it changes the, the flavor of being alone for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, the loss of agency, sort of like the loss yeah. of the ability to not have to do it. Also, another thing is how willing people are to not take care for other people. Mm -mm. You know, the people that get livid if they have to put on a mask in public and, you know, refuse to do so. And I, that does amaze me and unfortunately it doesn't amaze me that people are so self-centered and you know scream about their rights you know i have the right to not wear a mask and possibly make you sick mm -hmm. i don't understand that mentality neither do all. i it's it's something my brain has not been able to compute yeah yeah mine, mine neither um, so sharing a meal is one of the most universal concepts that mm -hmm. binds people together in mm -hmm. every place in the world. And I wonder if that was the main idea for your cookbook, I, Ingredients ah, for Peace. I didn't know that you were going to talk about the cookbook. I, yeah, it, it actually started out as a, um, a high school project for my stepdaughter. Oh, she had Emily Goose. She had been um, working on the high school yearbook, I think, you know, the layout and design mm -hmm. and all of the students had to do a project and she was going to design a pamphlet or a booklet or something. And I had the idea of why don't we do recipes for peace? Because she cooks a lot. She's a very good cook. So that's how it started. And of course we have uh, tutu chicken. <laughs> From your grandfather, and of course, it is not him who cooks. But I was going to say, um, he's never made me two two chicken, so. <laughs> I have to say, I had it somewhere, and it was delicious. Your grandmother must be a good cook. Mm -hmm. 
Are you a good cook? I think I am. You'd have awesome. to ask my husband, but I think I am a very good cook. Good. Yeah. Okay. Well, I like that. Chicken. I make the Moongi's famous lemon chicken. Oh. So if you're in Atlanta or if I come up to Vermont, we can we can make some lemon chicken. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> well, I would love to ask you the two questions that I always ask people as well. Sure. And the first one is, what is your greatest fear for humanity? And what things are you doing to help that fear not come to pass? One of my greatest fears is that human beings will extinct themselves. Ugh. I know. Um, it, it's probably messed up, but I have this vision of human beings beca because we are so self-centered. Mm -hmm. um, even those of us who aren't, it's it's still hard not to think of self, right? Um, but in general, I think human beings just care about themselves and their immediate surroundings and people they know, right? right. That's why it's so easy to divide people by, you know, making the other your enemy, right? Absolutely. And if you, the other is my enemy, I don't care if they perish in climate change, as long as I don't and, and my people don't, right? And since right. people are that selfish, um, I can actually envision or could envision a world in which people ultimately extinct ourselves. But I have a vision of Mother Earth like taking a big sigh of relief maybe and the planet repopulating with all sorts of beautiful life forms mm. um, and hopefully not human beings again because we're too stupid to take <laughs> the responsibility seriously. Um, but does, I mean, does, when you think about the planet, there have been something like nine great extinctions, right? We mostly know about the dinosaurs, but there have been many extinctions on this planet. So seeing us extinct ourselves would not be shocking, but Mother Earth has always rebirthed. Right. It seems like we're just trying to speed up the process or something. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one of the things I've really been thinking about lately is we talk about the need to deal with climate change, you know, and all the human-made contributions to wrecking this planet. But one thing that we have taken out of the equation, and I'm curious as to why, is we don't talk about overpopulation. You know, we're billions of people on this planet. Mm -hmm. And if we keep on procreating like this, there's no way that that other forms of life can continue to exist on the planet. We keep taking their environment and wrecking it. Right. So I think that um, we have to be much more informed about not just little steps that we can take in our personal lives, but big changes that we need to make, like in the consumer culture. Mm -hmm. that, you know, keeps on bringing 
so much trash and pollution to the planet. We have to think about, do we really need all of this stuff? And mm -hmm. can we ever get, you're too young to know these things, but <laughs> there used to be, you know, Maytag washing machines were built to last for a lifetime, right? And then I can't remember when, what decades ago, companies figured out that if they made things break down, they could sell more things, mm -hmm. right? And so then you have more and more junk that you have to get rid of. If How could we make the, the culture turn back in time in that sense so that we actually make things that we really need and that will last for a lifetime? So we don't have the excess of them. Okay. Yeah. So then what is your greatest hope for humanity? It will get our act together and and care about each other and the other forms of life living on this planet. I mean, maybe you need to go tussle with a few more people. I I could do that. Yeah, that may help. Join me. I'm, I'm always down. <laughs> okay, well, I like that hope. And Jody, I want to say thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.